This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a senior reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. My co-host Mark Rotella is out this week, so I'm here on my own to bring you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Sanjeev Sahoda discusses his second novel, The Year of the Runaways. Then PW Children's and YA Reviews editor John Sellers recaps the Bologna Children's Book Fair. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen Bookscan. For this, I'm joined by PW's features editor, Carolyn Juris. Hi, Carolyn. Hey, Rose. Very nice to have you here. Um, so uh, let's talk a little bit about the fiction list first. Um, there's a lot of new books on there. Uh, it's really quite a big shakeup this week. It's I think it's been a while since we've seen this much movement Definitely. on the list. Absolutely. We've got a new number one and a new number two, um, both books by women. Uh, the first is As Time Goes By by Mary Higgins Clark, a thriller. Uh, nobody's surprised. And uh, <laughs> we don't have a review of this one yet, but uh, according to the jacket copy, it's about a news reporter who's trying to find her birth mother just as she's assigned to cover the high-profile trial of a woman accused of murdering her wealthy husband. So uh, there's a lot going on in there. Um, it sold 22,000 copies right out of the gate. Very respectable showing to land at number one. And just below that is The Beast by J.R. Ward. This is the 14th book in the Black Dagger Brotherhood series. And uh, again, we don't have a review, I'm afraid, but uh, it's a, it's a one of those books that you're really only going to read if you're already deep in the series, but lots and lots of people are. Um, it's a paranormal thriller series uh, with several romantic threads going through it, and uh, that one's just below the Clark, about 18,000 copies sold. And a very eye-catching cover, as I saw. And a very dramatic cover. <laughs> yes, um, Shirtless Men are where it's at. And uh, this one has a shirtless man on his knees in the rain. And if that doesn't make you want to grab the book, then that's a trifecta right there. Then you're not the target audience. <laughs> Um, so a little bit further down at uh, number five, we have The 14th Colony by Steve Berry. Um, this is the 11th thriller in his Cotton Malone series. And uh, we say in our review, it offers a clever variation on the theme of racing against the clock to avert national disaster uh, with a storyline that expands to include missing nukes, a society formed after the Revolutionary War and a dying man's cryptic reference to the Zero Amendment. Uh, richer characterizations and more thoughtful suspense elevate this above similar 24-like stories. But this is clearly going to appeal to anyone who is a fan of the show yes. 24. Just below that, at number six, Family Jewels by Stuart Woods. Uh, this is the 37th Stone <laughs> Barrington novel. These series just, it's amazing how they go on. Um, and, uh, you know, this, this one's still good. We say that dry-witted dialogue keeps the tone light and drives this glossy modern take on a classic detective story, uh, which in this case is about a wealthy divorcee who's hired Stone Barrington, a New York City detective and attorney, to dissuade her ex-husband from stalking her. A worthy cause. As absolutely <laughs> a worthy cause. And uh, down at number nine, we have Miller's Valley by Anna Quindlin. This is uh, more on the literary side. We say uh, her latest novel is a moving exploration of family and notions of home beginning in the 1960s in a small Pennsylvania town. Uh, and we say the pacing is a little uneven, but Quindlin's prose is crisp and her insights are resonant in this coming-of-age story. So uh, really the thrillers tend to stay at the top there. Absolutely, uh, yeah. And then the, the literary works start coming in below them. Uh, we have a, a contemporary romance at number 10, What We Find by Robin Carr. Uh, most of these romance titles come out in mass market, so we don't see them on the hardcover fiction list very much. But uh, Carr is a very popular author. Oh, yes. And, uh, this is a, a big hardcover for her. And she's taking a break from her Thunderpoint series to explore the mountains of Colorado in this contemporary. Our review says it's filled with set pieces that ring true, but largely 
fail to excite the reader, uh, and that the plodding pace eventually overpowers the pleasant setting and spicy sweet romance. So that one's maybe for the fans. And I just wanted to touch on a couple of things that are a little lower down. Uh, at uh, number 14 is The Murder of Mary Russell by Laurie R. King. Um, this is a Mary Russell and Sherlock Holmes novel, and uh, 15th in her series. And uh, we say it's subpar and an atypical entry that will appeal mostly to longtime series fans. And just below that, uh, at number 18, is Lilac Girls by uh, Martha Hall Kelly. And we called this a compelling debut, which follows three women through the course of World War II and beyond. And despite some horrific scenes, this is a page turner demonstrating the tests and triumphs that civilians faced during the war, complemented by Kelly's vivid depiction of history and excellent characters. And uh, finally, just below that at number 20, Glory Over Everything by Kathleen Grissom. Uh, this is a follow-up to her debut novel, The Kitchen House, uh, which got a lot of press, and we say it breathes life into the captivating story of Jamie Pike, who's the son of a white slave owner and a biracial mother in the early 19th century. So uh, there's quite a lot of history, I feel like, on, on the list this week. Uh, so tell us what's happening on the nonfiction side, Carolyn. Hey, there's a lot happening in nonfiction. Uh, the top six books are all new releases this week. And um couple themes seem to be in emerging. One is family. Mm -hmm. uh, the number one hardcover nonfiction release is The Rainbow Comes and Goes, and that's by Anderson Cooper and his mother, Gloria Vanderbilt. And it's uh, a compilation of correspondence between the two of them, fairly recent, all email, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, and he said that he wrote it um, with the idea that people may want to preserve those conversations with their parents and also, you know, just get to know them better and um, the, the some of the write-ups are funny because they talk about this as if Gloria is on her way out and she might be <laughs> a little upset about that at 93 years old or no. Um, but that's kind of the idea is this sort of Get adult relationship. And yeah. And there was a, an HBO documentary a couple of days ago that came out as well, sort of with the two of them. It was called uh, Nothing Left Unsaid. Mm -hmm. So that's the idea is just Got it. get it all out there right now. Right. That makes a lot of sense. Then a couple of other books that look at family relationships a bit different. The uh, the number 12 book is called Mother, Can You Not? And <laughs> I feel like I need to say that with a bit of attitude. It's based on Kate Siegel's Instagram account called Crazy Jewish Mom, which has 813,000 followers. Wow. And I believe it got its start. Kate just started putting up uh texts that she would get from her mother, mm -hmm. very inappropriate, intimate, uh, <laughs> you know, all the kinds of things that the stereotypical, I will say, Jewish mother might be inclined to say. Mm -hmm. So that is at number 12 with uh, about six, six, 7,000 copies sold. Not bad. Does she credit her mother as a co-author? Uh, she is not credited as a co-author. I believe she may be on the cover. Mm. Uh, so at least her picture is there. Right. Um, but it's it's pretty obvious where the humor is coming from. Yes, it's coming definitely. from mom. <laughs> and then uh, at number 13, uh, Leslie Stahl's Becoming Grandma is about exactly what it sounds like. Mm -hmm. um, so those are sort of two and a half, three generations of, of family books going mm -hmm. on there. Fair enough. Um, we've also got a few books um, addressing aging. Mm-hmm. The Longevity book by Cameron Diaz, who I believe is not all that aged. I was going to say. <laughs> uh, and Sandra Bark. Um, but Cameron Diaz has written, I mean, obviously best known as an actress, but she's written recently, she had a book called The Body Book, which mm -hmm. is a similar healthy living kind of title. Um, number nine is Disrupting Aging by Joanne Jenkins. She's the CEO of the AARP. Mm -hmm. So it's more of a lifestyle book and just, you know, continuing wellness as you age and how we address aging. The word disruption there sounds like a, a buzzword. It's definitely a buzzword. It, 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 as though aging is the sort of thing that you could be like, like Uber, but for aging. Right. <laughs> um, I'd be curious to see if she's figured that out. Um, but it's, I, I guess the idea is that we're not going gently into that good night. And right. Then uh, number 10, a more conventional book, The End of Heart Disease by Joel Furman, who has done a few of these kinds of the end of, I believe he had one, The End of Diabetes. He's a physician and it's, you know, it's a pretty straightforward health title, I think. 
then we've also, speaking of disrupting, uh, got a couple of business books mm-hmm. making their debut. And they're both sort of talking about um, entrepreneurship and doing things a bit differently. Uh, number four is The Third Wave by Steve Case, who was a co-founder of AOL. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to think of AOL as a startup, but of course it once was. Yes, it was, it was quite a disruptive startup, in <laughs> fact. Exactly. And uh, at number five, uh, Born for This by Chris Guillebeau, I believe it is. Uh, he wrote a book called The $100 Startup, and this is kind of continuing in that vein, um, just kind of embracing your own thing and, you know, disrupting things. Right. And uh, we've got a business feature coming up in May that sounds like it's going to tackle some of those same Definitely. topics. Yes. We're looking at entrepreneurship and sort of tangentially kind of following your bliss, like doing what you want in mm-hmm. the world, you know, not just the work-life balance, but actually enjoying your work. Yeah, definitely. That's a theme that we've seen on the bestseller list recently is uh, all these business books that are sort of torn between be more fulfilled and be more efficient. Right. So uh, it feels like that's the big conflict right now in, in, in business. Do you want to drive yourself to be more productive no matter what? Or do you want to kind of get away from these ways of tracking your progress and instead look for something more nebulous like satisfaction. Definitely. And I think the idea is that the younger people coming up are the ones who are saying, yes, I want to be driven and work hard and do something amazing, but not at the expense of having a life. Right. Well, it'll be interesting to see whether those trends continue. I hope so. (laughs) Thank you so much, Carolyn. It's always great to have you here and uh, always good to get your insights. Thanks, Rose. I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Sanjeev Sahoda tells us about immigrants and their descendants. We'll be right back. I'm Lee Eisenberg, author of The Point Is, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, I've got Sanjeev Sahoda on the line. His new book is The Year of the Runaways. Sonny, I'm so glad you could join us. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. So this is your second novel. Tell us a little bit about it and uh, about the central character, just for our, for our listeners who haven't read it. Give us a little bit of an overview. Yeah, sure. So it's called The Year of the Runaways, and it revolves around um, four characters, um, three, of whom who are, three of whom are illegal immigrants or immigrants with um, of dubious means um, from India, and the fourth character, um, a woman called Narinda, who's the visa wife of one of those um, young men. And it's, as the title suggests, it's a year in their life in England and predominantly in um, the north of England, Sheffield. And it's about the travails that they go through and what they experience and some of the hardships um, that they suffer and hopefully some of the um, humour that's also um, uh, in there in their sort of the times in the north of England as well. Give us a sense of what Sheffield is like, this this place in England where they end up. Yeah, Sheffield is my sort of home city. It's the city nearest to where I grew up and it's where I live live now. It's in South Yorkshire, um, sort of in the north of England. It's a very um it's a very hilly city. It's it has very sort of to me quite coldish winters. It's um it's quite a difficult place for the young woman when they arrive because work's quite initially work is there to be found, but work dries up very um, quickly, and there's also their community or the Indian community in Sheffield isn't particularly welcoming of them or total, um, actually far from being welcoming. They exploit them quite quite horrendously at times, um, and it's a city that they I'm not sure that the immigrant service ever feel as as being home, I think part of the, the point of the novel is that they could be, Sheffield just happens to be where they landed up, but really they could be anywhere. If they were in Manchester, they'd be working in, in, in you know, the factories there. If they were in Cardiff, they'd be working on the docks. They'll, they'll go wherever wherever the work is. Sheffield just happens to be where they land up, and I chose Sheffield because it's a city I know I know very well, so it was natural for me to set the novel as my first novel was, to set it in, in, in my, sort of my backyard. Sheffield was also the setting for your first novel, Ours Are the Streets, which is about a British-Pakistani man who decides to become a suicide bomber. Um, what was it like to portray the same place, but from a very different angle? Yeah, in some senses, the 
my second novel is sort of the inverse of the first novel. The first novel starts off with someone very much born and, and brought up in Sheffield who then goes to the subcontinent, whereas the second novel is, you know, they start off in, in India and then make their way to to um, England and Sheffield. And I think with my first novel, Sheffield, the sense of Sheffield perhaps wasn't, it didn't need to be as as strong as in the second novel. It was probably quite an impressionistic view of Sheffield that um, that's in my first novel, which is, feels quite natural because that's how probably I experience it. I don't, living in Sheffield, I don't think of myself as, I don't really, you know, I don't think of myself as living in Sheffield. It's just a city where I know and it has just, it's just there in, in a sort of, in an everyday sense, whereas with, with the, you know, if you're seeing Sheffield the first time as these young men are in my second novel, I did find myself having to look very, think about very close at how they would experience it, how they would see. So, for example, something like um, a lollipop lady, or, or I don't know if that translates to, to your sort of it, but someone who helps um, a school patrol crossing sort of person, mm-hmm. how that might look to someone coming from um, from India and how, you know, how, how a traffic warden sort of fears that they might experience if they see someone like a traffic warden who, to us, is, who someone brought up is completely relatively innocuous, but actually so anyone in uniform holds a certain amount of initial danger for all these young men. So, yeah, certainly just trying to see the work, the city through their, their eyes, which probably just what any you know, novelist or anyone who wants to do with novelists is, is, is always trying to do. So what led you to focus on uh, these particular struggles in, in the second book uh, about immigration, marriage, money, um, and a and a sense of of where someone belongs. Yeah, that's a that's a big question. I think to sort of, I suppose on one on one level the answer is you know, very much probably around that immigration has always been part of my history and part of my backstory. My um, and our grandparents were immigrants from. After partition in India, they had to flee from Pakistan to India. Then indeed, from, they left India to come to England. So sort of a double migration um, is what they had to go through. And then, and my parents as well, they immigrated from India to England. So I think because immigration has always been in in my own personal um, heart print, it was inevitable that it was that it would at some point find a route into. Into my fiction. When I go to India, you know, very frequently, I've been there twice already this year. So, and when I'm over there in, in Punjab, which is the, the, the state I know well in the northwest of India, stories of young men and, and women, indeed, who want to make their way to the West, be it UK or Canada or the US or Australia, New Zealand apparently is the current hotspot. Um, you know, those stories are always, you know, just always around, you hear them in the bazaar, you hear them in the markets, you hear them walking around. It's not a secret conversation with, you know, the, the desperate need for particularly these rural communities, which is where I sort of, I, I, I go to when I'm in India, sort of the need to um, get a share of the global spoils is, is very acute. And as I say, it's not a secret conversation. It's, it's conversations people are very open about the, the, the sort of the schemes that are available to sort of to enable them to make their way over. So hearing these stories, those are stories I've been hearing ever since I've been going to India, maybe 15, for the last 15, 20 years. Um, so coupled with my, so my personal history, it, it wasn't a big leap to want to write a story about, um, or, or seeing the, seeing the material there for something that would be, that would benefit from a novelistic treatment. Um, so that's one thing. And I suppose another question, the, another sort of answer probably lies in, you, you, know, you asked about the where to, you know, the, the need to the questions around where to, what to call home, and that's probably always been a very live question in me being sort of a child of immigrants growing up in the north of England at a time in sort of the, uh, you know, the mid the early to mid nineties when North of England was critically quite a difficult, difficult place with the manufacturing industry sort of being on its knees and decimated. You now questions about where where is my home and what do I call Mine and why don't I feel comfortable growing up in, you know, in my surroundings as, as my white friends feel, as comfortable as my cousins in India feel in India. So there's, I think the question of where to call home and what that land is was always, I think, there very much, um, inside me. Hopefully it's something I've sort of come to terms with now, but definitely in my adolescence it was probably a source of, probably quite a lot 
of um, inattention. And uh, I wanted to look at a little bit at this visa marriage between Randeep and Narendra, uh, because uh, as I was starting to read the book, and I'm not going to spoil anything, but um, the two of them get off to this incredibly awkward start. Uh, tell us a little bit about that that marriage and how it contrasts with, I guess, prevailing ideas both in England and in India of what a marriage maybe should be or could be. Yeah, so deep and um, naive, feckless, in some senses, quite, um, and, and quite immature and deep. He, um, he's probably the most fortunate of the three young men in the sense that he's probably the one from the from the most middle class background, but his family find themselves on quite hard times and he um, gets into a visa marriage with Narinda. And a visa marriage, um, for both of them, it's they're going to be married for, the idea is that they'll be married for one year, at the end of which um, he'll be able to apply for his indefinite right to remain in the UK. And once he gets that, they can get divorced, she can go on um, her way and he can then, once he gets his citizenship and passport, call here, the rest of his family over from India. Um, I'm not quite sure things go as smoothly as <laughs> they intend, but that's, that's, that's the plan. Um, but it's, it's odd because so they have to pretend to be married for a year. I mean, that year, at any moment, um, immigration, sort of, sort of inspectors um, or officers can sort of check on them, check that they are missing as man and wife, check that they're marriage is, is real and bona fide. Um, but yet, um, because Narinda is from a Sikh background and quite a devout and Sikh herself, um, she can't actually um, live with Rindeep. Um, so they're living far apart. Though she does, for reasons of her own Lucy Sheffield, they're living in very um, separate conditions and in separate flats. Um, so and to, for her to live with Rindeep would be and for that to be found out that she was living with um, a man um, which she wasn't really married to, it would, you know, the, the, the notions of shame and honour that I would bring upon her family would be um, cataclysmic. So she, though she agrees to the visa marriage for her own reasons, for reasons in her past, um, it's quite uh, a perilous state of affairs that they don't live together. They're, they're actually, they're not man and wife in any meaningful sense, and yet they need to be seen to be living together for... Um, for for the for the for the, the visa marriage contract to be to be fulfilled, so it goes against sort of what any notion of marriage. I think not just in the Sikh community, what any what anyone would think of as a as a sort of a, um, what constitutes a marriage. And um, at times, it sounds like Ranjit sort of hopes that it's going to become something more than that. He keeps talking about how pretty she is and how nice she is, and um, meanwhile, she's just really focused on getting through it. Yeah, I think he he harbors hopes. He's he's a, he's a very hopeful character. He's, he sort of he can't really see Narinda in in any proper sense, and I don't think he has a real any sense of what it is to be married. He just seems to. I think he's quite homesick for India, and he seems to latch onto anyone who's nice or kind to him, like thinks is going to help him through this year. I think in the I think he's probably the one who struggled the most with um, adjusting to life in in England, and he sort of holds on to Narinda as a bit of a life raft. And as you say, Narinda, she's not interested in any sort of relationship beyond their formal um, contract. Um, and she just needs to get to the end of the year so she can then go back to living her her, her devout life with her father and brother and her potential suitor who's waiting in in the wings. Um, needless to say, things don't quite go like that, but they are, they are very different um, requirements and needs from their from the year-long contract. Um, but that, that's a cause, novelistically, that's that's a cause for tension and, and hopefully some drama. And I think what I really like in, what I really wanted in this book was just that, that sort of the drama when you bring characters um, together and not a sort of a plotty drama, but just the drama of conversation, how people who want things that they don't know that they want and how that plays out in, in their sort of their, in their life. And there's that sort of that tension of, of things not being said that I really wanted to, 
try to bring out. And um, social cast is also a very big part of that tension, that drama. Um, it's something that the characters kind of bring over from India with them, but that doesn't necessarily work the same way in their new setting. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, cast is just um, everywhere in India. Every time I'm over there, it always seems to um, assail and appall me anew just how much caste, some of you to go, it's a caste, it's a sort of social hierarchy, a social stratification of people, and there's from a high caste down to a, a, a so-called low caste, and caste defines, sort of, um, to some extent, it still defines what job you can do, though there are things being in place in India to um, count against that certain, like, for example, um, certain number of places at universities are alert for certain caste to try to help things out, but generally in India still caste defines what job you do, um, who you can marry, sort of what status in, in what the community is. And it's something that has carried over to, um, England as well. So the, the sort of the first and probably the largest wave of, um, Indian symptoms jargon, in particular to the UK was in the 60s and the early 70s. And they carried those caste values with them. So, and they're still playing out, um, today's caste still defines who a lot of parents would like their children to um, be argued. And in the book, there's um, a character called Dochi who's from um, the low caste Dalit, or sometimes called the Chamar caste. And he leaves India. His primary, primary reason for leaving India is to hopefully escape the sort of the um, sort of the confines of his his caste and sort of be his own man and sort of just have a say in his own life, which is something he wasn't able to have in, in India. And he comes to England and he finds when he tries to look for work, he finds it so, um, cast affiliations and that, that just seems to stick to him following him around and it takes him, um, you know, it takes, um, takes him about the whole year to sort of find a way, find a way through that if he ever does, I suppose. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. I'm talking with Sanjeev Sahoda, the author of The Year of the Runaways, talking about the conflicts between Indian and English culture and the ways that they overlap. And um, I'm a little curious. Uh, both of your novels have had a very strong focus on getting into the heads of the characters, really seeing things from each person's perspective and developing these characters is very detailed, very nuanced. What are some of your tools for doing that as a writer? Getting to the heads of characters, um, I think that's maybe just the way my brain works. I'm, I'm probably quite inquisitive and quite curious. Um, and I, I, I think we're just generally in my life, in a, you know, I'm in a social setting. I, I find that I'm always being told that I don't always say very much. I do tend to sit back and have this sort of this, I think I sometimes think it's quite a tiring vigilance and just constantly trying to work out what, um, what people really think and why they're not saying what they really think. Um, in terms of tools, I, um, I'm, I seem to be driven by character first and foremost above, say, um, theme or, or plot. And I don't sit down and write biographies. I do write draft after draft until I feel I've got a handle on, um, the characters. But beyond that, um, I, I it's just, just the sort of an imaginative curiosity into the minds of people who aren't like who aren't like me in some respects, but in some respects, perhaps in their emotional gesture or their emotional posture, are perhaps very much like me. And so it's probably a way of understanding myself as well as understanding other people. So you studied math and worked for an insurance company. How did you end up being a novelist? Um, yeah, so I worked for an insurance company for. 
the better part of five years. And um, I think probably like a lot of a lot of novelists, I started being a big reader first and foremost. And throughout my university career, um, when perhaps I probably should have been studying, I was mostly just reading novels, which probably explains my degree to some extent. Um, and then I think after about several years of just heavy reading, I so started asking questions of the writer beyond the words and wondering like, how did they how do they create that effect how do they make me feel the way I'm feeling why do they write the book in that way just wondering how the book sort of works a bit like a clock or a watch what are the pieces that have, have made this book happen and made it come alive and I think once you start thinking like that in that sort of technical way it's not it's not a big leap to want to have a go to, you know to have a go yourself at seeing if you can do something um, similar. Initially, I was writing my first novel in just the weekends and evenings and during holidays while working full time. And um, once I was published, and I started writing my second one, the novel I was able to leave the day job behind and just um, concentrate solely on on writing. And uh, now, now you've got this uh, this basement writing studio where you can sort of hide away from prying eyes and, and write in private. Is that still a big part of how you work as a writer, even with all of the attention that you've started getting for this book, the Man Booker Prize shortlist and all of that? It is. I've not done much writing over the last few months. Um, it's not, been a not, busy not time. Novel writing. Yeah, it has been. It's, it's, it's sort of blindsided me a bit. But still, I do still go down to my basement. I, I, I can't, still can't seem to work with any natural light or... Um, any, but there's any risk of any regular interruption. So I do go down to the basement and just sort of hold myself down and um, crank away at the laptop. Um, I hope that will change. I think I do need to try writing in a room with a view because I think it's just probably a much more healthier way to actually go about the business rather than going into sort of a dungeon and then it's like coming up for air after a few hours. And how do you balance that out, um, you know, the, the writing at home, especially with your family life? Yeah. Um, no, we just um, try to have a schedule and just have to do. Uh, so I I don't write on, uh, you know, there's one day when um, I have the kids and there's nursery and there's one day when my wife has the kids and I write full time and then the week I try to leave clear. Um, so I try to write these four days out of, out of the week as much as I, I can. But yeah, it's just about, as you say, just having a balance between family, work, and other stuff. And um, going back to what you said about being a big reader first and foremost, and about uh, kind of taking books apart to see how they work, um, what did you find when you started really looking uh, at the books that you loved in this analytical way? Were there particular commonalities? Were there particular styles that really intrigued you? I think it I think it evolved. I think when I, I mean the books that really made me fall in love with reading um, initially were those big sort of immersive you know, classic books. The Russians in particular, like mm. Anna, Anna Karenina was a big one. And then A Fine Balance, you know, these big sort of stories that are almost like these productions in themselves and these loads of characters and just seeing, you know, the novel as this sort of playground where things happen, you know, where, where people come up against each other and you just see what sparks fly. And but then I I think but then I think as I became as I become more experienced either other things seem to come into play, just like books that perhaps play with form a bit more or a bit um or look at look at the world slightly different, perhaps more allegorically, like something like disgrace, like at fear. So I think um, tastes evolve and change. I don't go back and read the books I loved as a, I loved initially, just for fear that I might not actually, um, or might start seeing thoughts of them. But um, I think that likely to change because I think it can only be healthy experience to go back and reread those books and find out if my, if my opinions on them have changed, not why they've changed, and so forth. Um, but yeah, I think I think it's 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 always changing. I think the I don't read as goldenly or as innocently as I did. I don't know if it's just a function of writing or just having you know, read so much. I, I 
when I'm reading now, I do seem to constantly looking at why the writer did that and the cogs behind it, or oh, I wish the writer had done it this way, or, or perhaps it would have been better this way, that sort of that. And I miss not being able to read as as as, as innocently, really, as I as I used to. I have the same issue as a, as a journalist, a reviewer, an editor, um, and uh, what finally uh, broke me out of that was uh, reading poetry because I know so little about it. Uh, so yeah, maybe uh, maybe a change of scene would help. Yeah, I find that too. I find that with um, nonfiction as well. Like good nonfiction just takes me out of it, or even just like a different medium like film. I find that really, I can sort of find myself getting swept along that because. I know absolutely nothing about it, so there's no, there's nothing that I can bring to the table, really. Yeah. Uh, and you've said that uh, in, in other interviews that this book, The Year of the Runaways, is a little bit of an homage to um, some of those immersive books. Was there anything in, in particular that you were um, drawing a connection to or uh, paying honor to? Um, I suppose I, yeah, there's, big books with um, characters and stories that move me really I suppose that's what I was thinking of like a book like A Fine Balance um, with those you know characters who come together I think in climax I think they're together about three months but you see sort of how they change and how how they change each other by coming into contact with each other I think maybe something like that or um, as I said earlier like a book like and a Karenina where you just, there's these characters in this imagined arena and a sense of their past as well as their present. And I wanted that in the book as well, just because so in the book we see how these um, four characters, what's led them to be where they are at the beginning. And that was quite important to me, just to give a sense of the completeness of the book, the completeness of the characters, and therefore hopefully the completeness to um, the book as well. So I think those are sort of some of the um, places where I was looking to um, pick tribute, I suppose, if not homage, not homage yeah, tribute, I'd say. And uh, give us a sense of what you're working on now. You've you've dropped a couple of hints. Um, yeah, I've not, I've not been working on much over the last few months. I'm sort of thinking about um, a book that might, that might um, take in place either in the near future or with some sort of fantastical um, aspect or facet to it, but it's not quite clear in my mind. I've been really taken with the work of um, um, Sarah Mago recently and put out with a book like Blindness. So I think perhaps that sort of in my head. I've also got Partition in my head as well, the Partition, 1947 Partition, um, and Sheffield's always in my head as well. So. Um, I'm not quite sure how these things are going to come together if at all, but um, I'm not, it's not really quite configured into, into a really solid idea. It's all still quite abstracting, non-textual in my head at the moment. Well, I, I really appreciate you taking the time for the interview because I know that you've been doing an awful lot of these lately, and I'm sure they're, uh, they're cutting into your writing time. Are you, are you at the point where you just want to hang up the phone? No, it's been a total. It's been a, a total pleasure. Um, I'm okay. I know after this, I've just got to go downstairs and feed the kids dinner. So I'm happy to talk. <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much for taking the time for this. Uh, we really appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Rose. That's a pleasure. I've been talking with Sanjeev Sahoda. You can find his book, The Year of the Runaways, in stores right now. I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Children's and YA Reviews editor John Sellers takes us to the Bologna Children's Book Fair, so stay tuned. Hi, I'm Caitlin Greenidge, author of We Love You, Charlie Freeman, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. And today, PW Children's and YA Reviews editor John Sellers is here to bring us the news from the Bologna Children's Book Fair. Hi, John. Hi, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you? How's the jet lag? Good. You know, it wasn't bad. I um, for, Usually I, I try to go somewhere after the show, you know, tack on a little something fun. And this year I went before, and that gave me the weekend to, uh, to get back to New York Times. So. Ah, excellent. <laughs> Um, so tell us a little bit about Bologna this year and uh, some of the highlights. 
Yeah, so I think this is 51st, 52nd um, annual year for the show. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going strong. And this year, it was closer than ever to the London Book Fair, which is, you know, an, sort of another one of the major European or international book fairs. And I think people were nervous that, oh, gosh, these are so close together. Are people going to skip one or the other? How is it going to affect attendance? And that didn't seem to be a problem. Uh, t- attendance was up uh, apparently like 9%, according to the officials at the fair. And wow. People, you know, from once again all around the world, uh, involved in various aspects of the children's book industry, uh, coming out. So you've got publishers from around the world. You have agents. You have rights managers. You've got illustrators hoping to maybe that they can talk to somebody and get their first big break. Uh, all, uh-huh. that, all that and more. Great. So um, sounds like it was very bustling. How big is the space? Give us a sense of it physically. It's it's quite large. It's a it's it's an. Uh, you know, I guess you could think of it in terms of for New Yorkers, you know, the Javits Center or something like that. There's there's several different trade, there's several different halls, and it's sort of generally divided up geographically, where you've got a lot of the the British publishers, let's say, clustered in one area, American publishers in another, uh, European things like that. It's not a perfect thing, but it's you know it's pretty big. I think there's about four you know, four main halls that you can sort of wander your way through. And this year they actually had for the first time a, a new digital uh, hall, smaller than the others, but with a lot of kind of startup uh, digital companies, as well as presence from companies like, uh, you know, Google Play and Microsoft had, had stands there. And there were, you know, all sorts of uh, programming throughout the fair, different uh, panels talking about different aspects of the digital side of the children's book industry, apps, eBooks, and where those things intersect. Um, when Andrew was previewing uh, the London Book Fair for us, he mentioned that there was going to be a fairly significant focus on uh, self-publishing and indie authors. Did you see anything like that at Bologna, or is that less of a thing in the children's world? Um, I didn't see it in the, necessarily the same way that I might see it when I'm at a show like BEA. But at the same time, I mean, certainly there are illustrators there who are trying to you know break in, show their portfolios, and and publishing houses are receptive to that. You know, they often will host little. Um, sort of portfolio review sessions at their stands where nice. you'll see illustrators lined up, you know, wow. 20, 30 deep with mm-hmm. their portfolios waiting to meet with an editor. And I think it's, it's, it's a good opportunity for both. If you're a small house that can't afford to pay someone and, but you love this person's work, it, you know, it, it could really be a mutually beneficial thing where an author gets, or an artist at least maybe gets the chance they were looking for and a little publisher can, you know, bring them on. So um, that works out in terms of, you know, self-published authors hawking their wares. I didn't he- hear a lot about a ton of that, but I did hear uh, some of the agents saying that there were uh, some authors like that who were maybe trying to kind of sneaking up to the agent center and trying to, <laughs> you know, sneak, uh, sneak a quick little like hello in between meetings, which is frankly my strategy usually when I'm trying to, um, you know, pump, sure. pump, pump agents for information is to sneak up on them between meetings when they're trying to have a sandwich and instead uh, beg them to tell me what's going on at the show. Um, but apparently there might've been a little bit of that, but that was anecdotal. I, I didn't see too much of it myself. Um, um, what kind of programming was there? Um, well, there are, um, you know, there's, there's, uh, cafes uh, throughout the uh, um, throughout the halls, and their cafes maybe not the exact right word. They're basically lounges where you know people can sit and hang out. Sure. They have an author's lounge, a translator's lounge, an illustrator's lounge, and then this year they had a digital one too. And you will see a lot of um, kind of panel discussions and things like that happening throughout the fair. And they're actually fairly, you know, they always seem, depending on the presentation, you know, moderately well attended. I think more by the general public or illustrators or people who are, you know, I don't think that too many people flying out there from New York publishing are, are sitting down at, at those um, things as much. Um, and then beyond that, of course, there are some, some major awards that are announced uh, each year during the fair as well. So that was another sort of thing that people turn out for in big numbers. And this was one of the years for the Hans Christian Andersen Award. That's right. That's a that's a biennial award, if I'm getting that right. Yes, so it's every- one of my favorite words. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I got to always check that against biannual. But um, yeah, so that's every other year for that one. And they do award for an artist and an illustrator. Uh, the illustrator who won this year, she's also written some books as well as illustrating them. But her name is uh, Rochout Suzanne Berner. Uh, she's from Germany. Several of her books have been published here over the years. Uh, I think her most recent one was one called uh, Definitely Not for Little Ones, which is a sort of comic book style take on some Grimm's uh, fairy tales. So she's known here and certainly uh, popular in uh, her native Germany. And then on the uh, the writing side, it was a Chinese author named uh, Chao Wenxuan. I did a little digging around when I was, you know, writing up the news about this piece. And as far as I can tell, he had one book published here um, a few years ago by a very small press. I don't know that it got much attention or anything like that. However, I did notice that um, 
Walker in the UK recently published just in 2015 his most recent book called Bronze and Sunflower. And that is coming here actually next year. I think we just announced the deal in Children's Bookshelf this week okay. uh, from uh, Candlewick Press. Okay. So that sounds exciting. Yeah. So that, those were both good. And then it was also uh, the announcement of the uh, Astrid Lindgren Memorial Award, which is another major international award. It comes with a large monetary prize, uh, mm-hmm. currently worth about 600000 in U.S. dollars. Wow. And that year went to a uh, an author who was born in the U.S., uh, lives in London now, and is is quite well known and that's meg rosoff mm, yeah so, that's definitely a name i know yeah so uh, you know she's written both novels and picture books um how i live now uh, was a prince winner won a carnegie medal as well other books of hers uh, just in case picture me gone so she's had you know several books uh she's you know prominently known both uh, here and in the uk and uh she was the winner of that word this, this year um so these awards are uh for particular authors or illustrators individually rather than for works. Uh, correct. The, the, and, and actually, I think in both cases, uh, certainly in the case of the Lindgren, it's not even, it doesn't even have to go to a single individual. Um, I believe last year's winner was actually a, a South African literacy organization for the Lindgren Award. So that one is more a little bit more flexible. The Hans Christian Andersen and uh, you know, those awards are, are for authors and sort of their career, not a specific book, whereas the Lindgren will also go to a specific author or perhaps a specific organization, things like that, depending on the year. Got it. Uh, I'm I'm curious because um, it's it's always interesting to me how these things are decided and and what gets taken into account about somebody's persona, about somebody's involvement with other organizations or with events. Um, it's uh, it seems like a very mysterious kind of calculus. Yeah, you know, I think in both cases, these you know these these are awards that have you know committees, uh, juries that are sort of diving through large amounts of applicants. I think um, of eligible authors and things like that. Um, one thing I will note, and I know it's purely coincidental, but uh, going back to the Hans Christian Andersen, it was interesting that a German author won when uh, Germany was also the guest of honor at this year's fair. Uh, uh-huh. And I and they stressed during the announcement that it was very coincidental. But at the same time, a Brazilian author won two years ago, and it was also the year that Brazil was the... Uh... <laughs> so anyway, I'm not going to start any conspiracy theories, but it was uh, a coincidence. <laughs> uh, I'm also curious, because uh, Meg Rossoff has been in some recent internet controversies, and mm-hmm. so... Uh, it's. Uh, I always wonder how much that's going to influence or be disregarded by judges for something like this. Yeah, I mean, in this case, it would say uh, the answer is disregarded. <laughs> yeah, it seemed, seems to have been. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about what else went on at the fair. Um, were there any particular keynotes or uh, events that you went to that uh, really grabbed your attention? Um, you know, most of my fair is really just trying to talk to as broad amount of people, both from around the world uh, as possible and in different aspects of the fair. You know, this is a primarily a rights fair. This is publishers meeting with other publishers, meeting with agents. Um, this is editors looking for, for books they might want to bring over to the U.S. And so so rights is really what the great majority of people are, are there for. But, you know, the business is bigger than that. And um, one of the stories that I wrote up this year, I ended up talking to people who were at the fair for other reasons, sort of looking to see, you know, yes, you came out to Bologna, but you're not here to, you know, you're not, you're not here, you know, trying to, you know, make up a foreign rights deal. So so why are you here? Right. And so among people I talked to, I talked to a translator. Uh, her name's Laura Watkinson. She um, translates several books, children's books, into English, uh, generally from Dutch and German, a little bit of Italian. And, you know, for her, it, it was it, it's, it's a super convenient place. You know, a lot of the Dutch publishers she, she works for are all in one place. And it's just a way to sort of check in with a lot of the houses that she works with internationally. And similarly, you know, within the translation community, she made it sound like it's a fairly... Uh, tight-knit group and it's a it's a, pl- a chance for them all to sort of reconnect a little bit like that like i said there you know there is a translator's cafe where you could you know just sort of touch and keep in base with uh or keep up to date about what's what's happening in your world things like that and kind of compare notes um and so that's that was you know similar themes from other people who i spoke with to for the same article where you know it, it's a good it's a good networking opportunity even if rights is not your business. Um, the SCBWI, um, which is the Society of Children's Book uh, Writers and Illustrators, it's a global organization. It started in the U.S. and has expanded dramatically. I think they have more than 24,000 members now. Wow. Um, they have a booth there every other year. Um, and they're just trying to both promote both their authors and artists, but also it's a little little haven for members who happen to have made the trek out to Bologna. 
they host little artist uh, duels at their booth where they'll have a manuscript and they'll sort of, I guess, be describing it. And then two illustrators will be frantically sort of you know, <laughs> sort of competing to illustrate it sort of on the fly, um, which is a lot of fun. It gets a lot of attention there. And, and there's other organizations um, for artists like that who also have a presence at the fair. Again, a networking opportunity if you can make it out there. Well, another woman I spoke to was from a, a nonprofit organization uh, based in Palestine, and for decades now they've been translating books uh, into Arabic, um, uh, basically ever since the the first intifada, trying to make up for after schools were closed at that point. And she mm. is just trying to expand her base of contacts, talk to other nonprofits who are there, sort of you know again trading ideas, broadening a base of uh, support there. So I talked to a digital company. I talked to um, an agency that represents artists. So there's, you know, there's it, it, because it is such a a large cluster of people who are involved in the children's book world. Even if you're not there to sell or buy rights, there's there's a lot of people you can um, interact with and, and make good contacts with. And after 50 years, uh, I'm sure there there are people who've been going for years or decades uh, who just see the familiar faces. Uh, is it hard for someone who's new there to kind of? figure out who to talk to or how to make introductions, how to break in? It probably, it probably is. I think if you're, if you're, let's say an artist wandering around, you know, there's a lot of other people doing the exact same thing. Um, you know, not unlike BEA and some of these other shows, you know, uh, it's not direct access. You can't just waltz in wherever you want to walk and, right. you know, talk to whoever you want to talk to. There's, you know, a lot of the bigger stands are sort of somewhat gated off. And, you know, if you don't have an appointment, like you're, you're probably not getting in. So people do show up and in actually compared to us fairs and things like that. I mean, it's, there's a, a surprising amount of children, actual children at the, at oh, the fair, okay. especially, especially, that. especially on the last day, you know, but you know, you have to contend with a lot more strollers than you do uh, at, <laughs> at some of the other fairs I've been to. Yeah, that's not usually an issue at BEA. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, so is the last day kind of a reader's day, the way that BEA has been doing with BookCon? Um, not maybe in quite the same way, but it's certainly more uh, consumer focused. By that point in the fair, um, a lot of the publishers are actually selling books. Um, mm. They're also those who are just giving them away at that point, not necessarily wanting to cart them on to wherever they're going next. Um, a lot of uh, people walking around trying to you know, sort of ask for donations for the poor, the poor children of Italy and things like that. So it, it, the last day is only a half day and it, it sort of feels like everyone is sort of their defenses are worn down by that time. And right. if it's not nailed down, you might not be taking it with you. <laughs> you don't necessarily want to pack up that carpet, right? Yeah, or you, exactly. know, no, you don't need that sign. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> Um, and then beyond that, you know, of course, like I said, it's a rights fair. So um, it, it, there was not this was not a year where one massive trend was standing out or even one massive title. There was, you know, plenty of activity. Every, all the agents that I spoke with were everybody seemed very happy with the, sort of the traffic and the business that they were doing deals that had maybe got started in motion before the fair, sort of leading to some other people who were interested in, uh, in things at the fair. But it wasn't, you know, this wasn't the year of the mermaid or anything like that. Right. Okay. Well, thank you so much for the recap and uh, giving us a sense. I, I really feel like I'm right there in the hustle and bustle. And for once, we're doing it uh, here in New York. Usually, I'm uh, actually telephoning in from Italy. So this is a, an improvement. <laughs> you, you, you had a moment to collect yourself. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, John. It's always great to have you here. Absolutely. And now a final word from our sponsors. Hi, this is Bridget Hios. I'm the author of It's Getting Hot in Here, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another in-depth author interview, and we'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcasts on iHeartRadio and iTunes, and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 